Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. This Australian Investors Podcast episode is brought to you by The Intelligent Investor, Australia's premier investment research membership service. You can get a free trial for 15 days, no credit card details required. To access the insights of some of Australia's best analysts, use the coupon code RASK and secure your Intelligent Investor membership today. We're proud to have The Intelligent Investor as an ongoing supporter of the Australian Investors Podcast. As a result, RASK does not earn a volume-based fee. Simply head to intelligentinvestor.com.au or use the link in your podcast player to access your free trial. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US and Hong Kong listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. In this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast, I chat with Matt Joss. Matt is the founder and chief investment officer of Maven Funds Management. It's my pleasure to sit down with Matt after a very successful season one discussion and interview with him. In this episode, we chat about coronavirus, the implications for the economy, for small caps, and some of the opportunities and strategies that Matt's using going forward throughout 2020. It's an exciting conversation. It's quite wide-ranging. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. G'day, Matt. Welcome to the show, mate. Thanks for having me on. Very excited to be here. Yeah, I love having you on the show. Um, here's a bit of trivia for you. Have a guess whose Australian Investors Podcast episode 
has been the most popular in 2020? 2020, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, mate, it is yours. Uh, I don't, yeah, cool. I'm not sure if you're just sharing it uh, every, anywhere and everywhere. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I've been knocking on doors, check this out, you know, putting flyers out. So. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been great. And um, I think just there was a lot that resonated with people from our discussion in what I'll call season one of mm -hmm. the series. Um, I just think, uh, you know, some of the insights you bring are really, really valuable to a lot of our community. So I'm eager to cool. hear how coronavirus has played out in your mind and how you're seeing that for uh, for your fund and, 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 and what you have going on. But maybe just to kick things off, what we can do is for anyone that hasn't perhaps seen the, the first installment of me talking to you, mm -hmm. you can just give us a rundown of you, a bit of your, your history and I guess Maven Funds and where you're up to with that. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, that podcast, we go into a lot of detail. It's a really cool interview, um, more than I've done anywhere else. Um, but, yeah, so I'm, I'm Matt Joss. I'm the Chief Investment Officer of uh, Maven Funds Management. So Maven Funds Management, we're a Sydney-based investment manager, and we try and find small, fast-growing companies that are small today but have the potential to be kind of the big, dominant businesses of tomorrow. Uh, so we're trying to find those companies early in their growth journeys, um, ideally when they're just tipping past what I call like a fundamental inflection point where the fundamental cash flows are about to get a lot better for them than they have been in the past. And uh, just, yeah, building a really high conviction thesis, a lot of lot of research, and I, attempting to hold on for the, the long term. It won't always happen. Sometimes we need to sell quickly if our thesis is broken, but ideally holding on for the duration of that kind of high, high growth period, I guess. Um, and so, yeah, we're launching our, our fund next month, the Maven Smaller Companies Fund, so Australian and New Zealand businesses, um, again, trying to focus on the smaller end, but being willing to hold kind of throughout that duration of that high growth period. Uh, in my background, I'd previously uh, run a portfolio service for uh, Motley Fool Australia, Motley Fool Pro. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so excited to, excited to be, I guess, uh, doing it again. It's a pretty amazing time, I think. Um, obviously, it's... Um, you know, there's a very serious health challenges we all have to be uh, very cognizant of and doing our part. But I think from an investing perspective, it's um, we'll talk about that a lot more. But it's a pretty interesting time and pretty keen to get started. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting time for everyone. Not you know, obviously not just investors, but our I guess political system, um, consumers, businesses, just everyone involved. But I guess for you too, you've got quite a few balls up in the air that you're trying to juggle. Obviously, getting the fund off the ground. Um, and taking that leap is one thing and then dealing with all of this, you could say, quote unquote, unprecedented times. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's, it's quite challenging. So, I mean, credit to you for, for, for pushing through and, and coming out the other end and, and trying to deal with some of the administrative issues, which for anyone that's been involved in funds management knows uh, can be quite challenging, to say the least. So that's great. Um, you said that the fund is launching next month. I just want to just circle back to that. Just for anyone that maybe watches this at a later date, we are recording this around mid-April, so mm -hmm. that means May 2020. But Matt, you've, you've given us an overview of kind of the, the overarching philosophy. People can go back and listen to the first episode. What are you seeing from a bigger picture point of view? I know that's a very generalised question, but maybe we can dive into some of the specifics. But just in terms mm -hmm. of the coronavirus, some of the things that have jumped out to you in recent months. Yeah, so I've been tracking it um, for a few months. Uh, to me, I think at first, I was in kind of January, I was, I was similar to a lot of other folks who kind of saw that maybe this is just going to be contained and kind of using the parallel of like SARS in 2003. Um, late February, I started to have a very different view on it. Um, it got, I guess, taken a step back. Like uh, at school, I, I loved studying history. 
And I think people misunderstand that history is about understanding the past. And to me, it's about understanding the future because you can see how different things can be. And so I just started to see how how easily that um, parallel of, you know, the previous pandemic, which the last time we had something is obviously 1918 um, with the Spanish flu and, and what that could mean. And it it just kind of got a bit, um, a bit crazy there because we were running up at the same time we had a lot of stimulative kind of euphoria and the markets were running incredibly hot. Um, and it got to a point where I think a lot of the market was just, yeah, just, just, just discounting it way too aggressively that it, it could happen. Um, another thing I focus on a lot with investing is, is exponential growth, um, like you mm. say. I think it's just um, a bias that it's interesting in the, in the investing world, it started to get more change. You see a lot of particularly venture capitalists, a lot of them have been posting on Twitter about that in America, trying to get people um, aware of what's happening. But if you step outside of that, most people don't think about exponential growth at all. You know, we think linearly, our brains evolved to handle a lion running at us in a line, they don't run exponentially. So we're not designed to think that way. Um, I could just kind of see this confluence of things coming together. We could see how much of a shutdown was required in China. Um, so yeah, coming in towards the end there, I got, um, I wouldn't say like bearish. I don't think about things in a, in a market level. I try to think about things bottom up, but I just saw so many businesses which would have real big impacts. And I, I, there's a lot of we made about the shutdown of government decisions. Um, we're very lucky the countries that we, that we live in, Australia, um, originally from New Zealand, I think that we've, been able to um, hammer this down very aggressively and we think we can rebound more quickly. But there wasn't really good scenarios, I guess, if you're coming at that time. There was, you could let it run the course and that would be extremely devastating. You have a health system collapse and a lot of consumer collapse just because no one wants to catch the virus or you shut down and that has its own kind of sudden stop dynamics. So yeah, for me personally, I, I um, kind of moved, uh, there's a lot of change in my portfolio, I guess you'd say, I moved a lot to cash and late. February and yeah really excited now because I think there's a huge amount of opportunities um, you know putting that to work pretty soon but I think that the thing to keep in mind and we've touched on this a lot more but it's really I don't think people investors particularly if they're individual investors should be thinking about the market and everyone's trying to the whole way down people are tweeting is this the bottom is this the bottom and maybe we've seen the bottom it doesn't really matter to me at all all that matters is there's this huge divergence and outcomes between different companies um, depending on how they handle this and that's what gets me like very excited and interested you see the whole market moving in one direction because of something that trump tweeted or whatever else mm. and i think if you really it does take thinking into the fundamentals of the business but there's just vast opportunity um, of businesses that can handle this well and that have been priced like they can and on the flip side the things to avoid are businesses that have been price, you know, forgetting that this is even happening, even though it's going to have a very potentially detrimental effect on their competitive position. So, yeah, that's kind of what, yeah. It's, it's, it's quite an overview you just gave us. Maybe we can start, I know you're not a necessarily a top-down thinker. You don't think, you know, like you try to see the forest from the trees and, mm -hmm. and what have you. But you mentioned something there that you, where you said that Australia is probably, you know, we're very lucky and we might bounce back quicker from this than some. Can you just flesh that out? Like what makes you what makes you think that? Yeah, so it was quite it was quite weird like just just thinking how much the world's changed. Like people forget how crazy the world we live in now mm -hmm. is compared to base rates. Um, I kind of tried to I did a tweet storm about this in like early March and it's tweeted about late Feb just trying to just take that step of shutting the border at that stage which everyone thought was impossible like the chief medical officer of 
Victoria and others are saying we can't do any more shutdown in China. Because the thing is, if you just stop that, then all you lose is international tourism GDP. And that's, that's big, but it's not as nearly as big as people think and is dwarfed by how much Australians spend abroad and how much Australians spend traveling domestically. So if you do that, you could actually have a substitution effect and bring it back home. But what's worked well is Australia had a big advantage. Hey, we've got a great medical system and we had the advantage of seeing everyone else go first. So we've been able to take steps combined with, I think, really effective institutions and um, been able to shut down aggressively early to a point where I think elimination is like a very viable outcome. And elimination is radically different. That's kind of what I was um, proposing with shutting the border early is you take some pain, but you avoid any other pain for the rest of the economy because you have um, shutting international tourism alone would be maybe one to 2% of GDP impact. But if you no one goes out, it's a very, very big impact, right? Mm. And so I think that now we're in a good position because we've got case numbers so low, more people are recovering than uh, um, getting infected now. Um, and same with New Zealand, where I think, I think what's going to happen is the world's going to change into green zones and red zones, and maybe it's come kind of yellow and orange in between. But there'll be places that have completely effectively stamped it out, and I think Australia's likely to be one of them. And I think that there you have a return to normal much more rapidly and you probably have some relief of everyone going, that's nice, it's nice to have to go out to a restaurant again. And maybe you have some more frictions added to that society. So you might have temperature checks going into buildings. You might have um, some kind of voluntary use of a tracing app. You might have people wearing masks, which are all things that I definitely recommend. But you don't have this prolonged um, effect of either government-mandated or um, bottom-up driven um, avoidance of consumption. And I think other countries are definitely not as lucky. United States has a lot of challenges, even um, it's just so uncontrolled there with over, you know, hundreds of thousands and coming up to over half a million, um, over half a million now, I think, uh, infected. It's so many, it's so hard to control. You start lifting again, but then the, the R naught, the spread rate will increase. Um, and I think, yeah, we're in a very fortunate position. And I think that that means our companies, even the ones that are internationally kind of internationally exposed, which is a lot of, a lot of what I love, are probably, um, you know, relatively better position than a lot of other peers. So, yeah, well, well position. I'm hoping, I'm hoping it um, goes that way, and we get kind of a green zone. And then you can have other countries that are part of that network, so New Zealand, Singapore, other parts of Southeast Asia, even China, um, being able to exchange tourists again with them, maybe with some frictions and maybe some rapid testing at the border. But that opens things up so much more quickly, and you have everything else come back as well. Restaurants and you know um, leisure and, and domestic tourism have a huge campaign, give everyone some money and travel around Australia. So yeah, so so really, it's a fascinating time. Um, I think you just need to be aware and observing of what's happening. When you talk about this, it's 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 a really good way to frame it in, in so far as these buckets, if you like, or these colours. Mm -hmm. When you think about bottom-up analysis and you're valuing companies, how does the currency impact your, your valuations and your thinking? Because you mentioned there that, you know, some of the domestically listed businesses, so ASX listed businesses, or even mm -hmm. in New Zealand, that do a significant part of their, their business overseas, but you have to factor that in, factor that in somehow, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's 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 basically a tailwind for most of the businesses they look at, particularly the moves that we've seen already. So the Australian dollar falling, they earn, um, you know, many of the businesses I look at might earn 90% of their revenue in USD. 
Um, that's pretty nice when you're Australian or New Zealand based business. So it is something I don't try to forecast that. And I'd probably, if anything, just have a buffer there. So I might, I won't take the current um, Australian, you know, latest price of it at all time lows of 60 cents or something, maybe stick to kind of a higher average price that we'd seen before, maybe closer to 70 or something like that just leaves. I don't want that to be, um, I don't want to be, if I'm going that fine tuned where, you know, the 5% move there makes a huge difference, probably means the business case itself doesn't stack up because it should be, a, you know, kind of an overwhelming discount to my estimate of intrinsic value. But that's something you need to think about. I think if there was some, it is just like another macro thing. I think it's based to be like aware of them, even though you're bottom up focused. If there was some reason to think the Australian dollar was going to rally super hard, that would be something I'd be thinking about. Um, at the moment, it's kind of moving, you know, to in the favor of um, those kind of companies that are, domestically listed, but with international operations. Yeah, it's an interesting one. While while we're in the weeds on this, and mm. I know some people listening to this might be like, what are they talking about? But That's uh, all right. Weeds are good. Yeah, they are. Um, when it comes to valuations and how you think about, you know, your modeling and that type of thing, obviously interest rates factor into most models that we, we create as analysts. Mm. How are you seeing that in terms of, you know, interest rates US, here in Australia, they're pretty low at the moment, right? Yeah, fascinating question. Um, something I've been, it's not just now, it's the past um, 10 years, right? Because we've seen this decline to almost zero now. Um, I guess the way I think about it is generally being pretty sticky to what interest rates had been in the past. Um, I do try to, I'm not trying to purely just stick with some number, but that's kind of where I'd lean towards. When I say some number, I mean my required rate of return. So I don't really go much below a cost of cost of equity, get into the weeds of around, say, nine and a half, ten percent around there is probably what I look for. Right. And then I think what that does is it does make it, you have to be more disciplined to buy because you're not lowering your kind of standards as the market does. It does force you to be more picky. And I think the only thing you need to balance that with is it should force you into the best investments, basically, as long as you're doing it well. But you need to just balance that with making sure you're having enough. Like if you only have one company that returns because you're using a super high you know, goal of return on capital, then that's not realistic. Um, so that's probably the only thing, but it's, it's been working well so far. Um, yeah, so I'm just, I'm just not, I don't want to give full credit to it, I guess. It makes the work, you have to do more work, but I think that's the trade-off. If there's a point where, um, I felt comfortable that the low interest rates were permanently here to stay. I'd be more comfortable banking that in. But um, yeah, I, I prefer it just forces you to work a bit harder. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things, right? Because as an investor, you, you have an expected rate of return mm. but at the, and you want to be stringent in your criteria, but at the same time, you don't want to miss out on opportunities because you have you know, arbitrarily added 1% in your discount mm. rate versus you know, what might otherwise be the case and you might move into a position. So I'm always keen to pick your brain on that. But before, if I could change gears again, you mentioned that there's going to be a wide range of outcomes effectively for different types mm -hmm. of companies. So, you know, we might have companies that thrive in this environment and actually emerge from it much stronger than they may have otherwise. But then mm -hmm. we'll have companies that, you know, we can see almost the white writings on the wall. We've seen some yeah. capital raisings. How do you think about that? You might have examples, you might not, but how, do, how are you thinking about that um, from a, I guess, from a bottom-up perspective? Yeah, it's, it's great. That's exactly, exactly right. That's what we're looking at. Um, there will be companies that go bankrupt. There'll be others that thrive and some will be resilient. I think it really comes back to 
really deeply understanding what the business does. So really it's not that much of a change to my process, but um, most of the time that we're researching isn't the valuation piece, it's understanding the business and is this the type of business or the type of characteristics we want. And that means really understanding the model. It's surprisingly difficult to understand exactly what a business does. That's most of the questions I'm asking when I meet with management. And when you do that, you can understand how it fits together with every other part of the economic system, if you'd like. Um, and I think that going through those base principles, you can see all the things that are affecting the economy right now. Like there's no leisure spending, people are spending time at home, but then you have to think through all the behavioral impacts that that's seen. And what you want to do, I think, is come up with first principle thoughts on that and then try and sanity check that with channel checks or talking in the real world. Um, I think a lot of the finance world is in a bubble. Um, a lot of investors forget, you know, just how lucky we are to be investing at all. Like, um, Mm. You're a small portion of the population even owns stocks and you do a lot of good work trying to get other people to get into investing. But um, it's, I think, stepping outside and understanding how it really works. So I'll give you one. And, and I should say when I'm looking at companies that thrive, for me, I'm a long-term investor, so I'm not looking to do trades. So I wouldn't mm. be looking to do a face mask company. And there's nothing against that. Like that, there will be people who make good money if you're early in buying a face mask company. But that's not a business I want to own in a mm. year's time, right? Um, once this is over. But there will be other businesses where this gives a boost to them because it um, accelerates the adoption curve. It kind of brings forward the inflection point, if you like, um, of kind of mass adoption. And so that's that's one thing that I'm looking for. But, um, but to your question of um, what type, so an example. So a great example of people that were trying to put on a trade would be like Invocare and funeral homes, right? So people, pretty dark kind of trade, um, were yeah. thinking there's going to be a lot of death from this, and so that's, that share price started rising. But they hadn't really thought that through, I don't think, because um, just looking at Italy at that point, they'd already banned funerals, right? So that was one, one immediate thing that you, it's very hard to run a profitable business if you've banned the main thing that you do. Um, and then the second is if you do shut down early, you can actually have a fall in total number of deaths in society. I think that's what we'll see in Australia. Although there will, there are, you know, tragically coronavirus deaths, there'll be less deaths total if you shut down early enough because there's less traffic, there's less like accidents. So there's some, some numbers already starting to come out showing that. Um, so it's just really thinking things through clearly, I guess, like what are all the flow on impacts of this? Um, and how does that, how does the business model deal with that? So one is the thrive where they bring forward the um, kind of inflection point and adoption. That's really, that's really interesting. Another is just really high quality businesses can be resilient and kind of take advantage. So um, if you are a high quality business that isn't at their store, you can expand and maybe you acquire a competitor that's been weakened or just, you know, launch new products. Um, in the US, we've seen incredible stuff coming out of Amazon with us where they're, I think, mm. going to just emerge so dominant as a result. Um, yeah, those are the kind of things that I'm looking for. Yeah, that's an interesting case study in InvoCare. Um, I guess one of the things that you look for is capital light businesses. And, mm -hmm. you know, we can throw that around for days and it sounds great. But in your mind, why is that important now? Yeah, so um, it's particularly valuable now if you're not dependent on, um, on, dependent on capital markets, basically. So the first is... We're looking for businesses that can expand no matter what happens. And if you don't require a huge amount of capital to expand, that's pretty valuable. Um, also, capital-intensive businesses tend to have be financed with a lot of debt, um, and so or even their competitors. And even if your competitors are um, kind of in a debt zombie land, it can be quite damaging for you. 
So I think that those two things is where we're seeing most of the damage. All this call for bailouts, which generally I'm not really a supporter of equity bailouts. I think you can save the operating business and the employees without that. But it's generally companies that have a lot of debt. That's the reason why they're in, in trouble. There's, um, it's very rare that an operating business without any debt is, is facing any, any survival challenge. Um, so yeah, that's generally what we, it goes kind of hand in hand is um, companies that are capital light don't tend to need any debt off and they have net cash positions. Um, and it means that you're, yeah, it means that you're more flexible. So you can scale things down more quickly as well. If you have a big factory, that's a large fixed cost. So being capital light often means, not exclusively, not always, but often means that you're more variable costs. Um, you can just turn things on and off. So we see that with some of the travel agents, I think. Mm -hmm. Some of them have a lot big brick and mortar presence and that's very potentially kind of life-threatening for the business. Others are purely based through online and when online you can turn off your marketing and it's very painful, but it's not as threatening. So yeah, that's what's, that's what's going to be interesting and just... Yeah, just um, studying. I'm always interested in moments of change, and that's most of what I look for. So this is like one of the greatest, probably the greatest we'll ever see in our lifetimes, I think. Um, I'm not talking just, I think maybe just buying the markets at the bottom or now, it's be a really great opportunity, but it's more that diversion, but uh, dispersion between different businesses um, that's just going to be huge. It's such a driver of change in so many ways. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just such a peculiar time insofar as volatility. You know, it's, been in terms of records we've seen plenty of records in terms of up moves plenty of records in terms of down moves so there's a lot going on and like you said bringing forward the adoption curve is, is a really interesting idea i'm curious if you have i know you are about to launch a fund so i i, I get you you know you're, you're knee deep in research and, and and all of that but if you have any uh, examples of companies that potentially are coming forward in terms of the adoption curve. Like I could maybe just come up with some themes, which would be video conferencing, for example, mm -hmm. we're recording this by, by Zoom. I think yeah. Zoom is, you know, the most talked about technology company globally right now. Yeah. Um, but then you have many other tools like Microsoft 365 and mm -hmm. you know, Google Cloud and all these different types of, um, I guess, thematics that are going to be pushed forward from yeah. this. Are there anything that is there any sector or technology that you're looking at locally and thinking that's really interesting? Yeah, there's, there's quite a few, I think, around um, anything remote, online learning, um, pushing to online shopping, all these things. And um, to give some kind of concrete examples, I um, generally uh, don't want to talk about too many names because we're about to launch, but there's a couple of companies I've talked about probably before, so happy to chat about them again um, because they're quite relevant here. So yeah, one great. would be Pushpay, so a company I've, I've written about um, the art of the deal and their kind of acquisition strategy. So mm. Pushpay um, provide, as, as, as you know very well, um, provide giving solutions for US churches, uh, particularly allowing them to um, have, a, have an app to engage with their, their, their members. And then those... Um, those uh, attendees have been able to give through the app and it's you know replacing passing around the collection plate and, and checks and you tend to see more reliable giving and it kind of works for the church and more engagement um, and people just it's very hard to understand in australia and new zealand because uh it's just not that same culture here mm. but it's very big in the us and they do um, do a lot um of good in the community and very kind of holding up a lot of the community and it's a really it's another great interesting one because Earlier, you, um, your first jump, jumping point would be that this would really struggle during um, this time because churches um, you know, will need to shut their doors for a period. But it's just going back to thinking through what drives the actual business because um, 
up to the last time that they reported, which was in March, which they'd actually seen an increase um, in demand for their services because they enabled remote giving engagement because people could watch the sermons through the app rather than having to be there present. I do think that I don't think it's just going to be pure plain sailing. So I'm constantly checking that thesis and mm. seeing because there are now actual shutdowns. But coming out of that, it's just such a selling point, right? When you're trying to drive that adoption, right? That shift from check where most giving is still check. Um, Pushpay has just a few percent market share of the total 120 billion that's donated in the US. If you can just bring that forward a few years, that's hugely beneficial. Um, and I think that, that it's going to be very easy to sell any church they're talking to on why you should have this ability. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a good example of, of something that's not obvious and need to do continuous channel checks on it. Um, another one that I owned for a while and I've talked about again is, is A2 Milk. Mm. That's another example where China shut down and, you know, it kind of sold off because a lot of people were quite nervous around um, what that would mean. But you actually saw an increase in demand. And why did you see that? Because Chinese mothers became even more health conscious than they were before. And A2 milk infant formula is seen as, you know, an ability to buy something high quality and nutritious for, for kids. Um, and so, yeah, you see that all, all brought forward. And, and, and for you have to continuously monitor that again because it can, can change. But, um, yeah, something that... A couple of examples, yeah. That, that's an interesting one. When you talk about channel checks here, I like how this is, I think, I think a thing that not many um, new investors think about is kind of circumventing management and getting that channel check right. So going to forums, going to people on the ground and actually speaking with them is so, so valuable because you, mm-hmm. you either confirm or, I guess, deny what management are saying because they can make things sound very well with a lot of double speak and, and what have you. In terms of A2 milk, I'm interested there. How do you think about channel checking in that way? There's been a lot of things I've done with A2 milk over the years. Um, so just uh, when it was selling out in supermarkets in Australia, just checking the tins, making sure, um, seeing when the expiry dates are, you can see when they're manufactured, mm-hmm. how, how rapid that's been turned over. More recently, it's become um, so China-focused it is checking things like like forums. Um, it's talking to people who um, either are Daigo or you know uh, are friends with Daigo and can kind of see what some of those channels are. Um, and it's just really just trying to get at and some of the big online um, portals in, in China. So yeah, it's a lot of that stuff. It's not easy. Another thing that we've been looking at is um, export volumes out of Littleton um, Port in the South Island of New Zealand which exports infant formula. And that's become a bit messy more recently, unfortunately, because there's some other volume going through there, but that had been quite a good indicator. Um, And yeah, what we've seen is they continue to take share. So um, they've they've continued to report very strong numbers. I think it's not always, um, I think you're looking for disconfirming evidence continuously. Like you're not gonna get a direct read on anything because you're just looking at all these alternative data sets, but the more different pieces you can bring together, the more that mosaic kind of kind of fits and you have a view of what the real world looks like. And um, another thing I'm trying to emphasize more now is just talking to people and particularly our investor base. Like the investors will have, we're very fortunate, um, you know, a lot of them are small business owners, they're professionals, um, they're executives themselves. There's a huge amount of knowledge there about just different parts of the economy. And uh, yeah, we're definitely looking to tap that and any of our investors have, a, have something that they've noticed, um, whether it's in their hobby or their business or their professional life, something that's new and emerging, that's where we want to be. Because we're, as I said, that inflection point just before things really ramp up, we want to be noticing those. So, yeah, just yeah. trying to find as many ways to do that. If, you, uh, if you're listening to this and you have any ideas, feel free to <laughs> flick us an email. Um, yeah. But, yeah, just, just keeping, 
keep getting outside of that bubble, as I said, talking to everybody and trying to understand what's going on. Yeah, it's interesting because you you talk to these ideas and you like you said, you're looking for disconfirming evidence. And I think, you know, the only truth is that you don't know what, what is exactly mm-hmm. going to happen. And um, for me, it's it's kind of piecing together multiple sources and when it comes to investing, it's just asking a question, you know, what sucks? So what is it about this that mm-hmm. makes it, you know, uh, would make it go wrong? And then mm-hmm. trying to find evidence which I guess confirms that or, you know, and in, in turn disconfirms your thesis entirely. So you're constantly seeking that out. And one of the best thing, resources you have is the people around you. I remember I was up in Sydney not so long ago with you actually and, um, we had a, a value investor program going on up there and some of the people in the room as we're talking about push pay had first-hand experience with it. So, you know, these are great resources that you can use. Um, in, in terms of push pay, because you've used it as, as an example, I'll run with it for now. Um, you know, we see some of these companies, there's flight to quality uh, right now. <laughs> I guess my, this is a generalised question, but push pay is a good example for it. You know, are investors at risk of overpaying for these businesses now? Because, the, you know, we, we our expectations, if we're thinking linearly, have been, you know, brought forward so far that maybe we're overcapitalizing into the valuation? Yeah, I would say um, I think push pay is more fair than some other ones because it um, seems to be holding up a lot better. But I think generally there's been... There's, been, there's a lot of companies that I'm amazed at the, the prices they're trading for. And I'm talking about businesses where there's going to be a very negative impact. And it's true. Like there's been a lot of comment that um, if you just delete like one year's earnings, then that doesn't really affect the intrinsic value of a business that much because you've got so many future years. But it's also that kind of ignores, I think, the competitive dynamic of a business that starts going backwards. And um, you definitely want to be modeling out, you know, the, cash flows for perpetuity and that's what we do but you need to think if your company is like brought like it's not just a zero it's not just they just don't do anything that's negative right if they're losing money during that period and another competitor isn't or maybe a substitute good isn't um then you know what happens then maybe maybe the whole dynamic starts to change so i think it's just there's been a lot where people are pricing in more so in the US because I think it's less likely there, but pricing in like a V-shaped recovery, as they call it, mm-hmm. and seeing there's going to be a huge um, change back. I don't see that. It's I think with all these things, as you said before, like we don't know the future. I think you need to think probabilistically about it. I don't see a high probability. That's not kind of my base case. It's not the most dominant one just because of the way that it's been managed there where unless you have a vaccine, I think even if government shutdowns lift, you won't see a lot of people kind of returning into those things very quickly. So yeah, a lot of tech companies have really rebounded. And I think um, something I'm watching closely is how a lot of these tech companies go when nobody's buying their products <laughs> um, as a new new signups, right? So some of them have recurring revenue and some of that some of that will be sticky, but I've I've heard plenty of other cases of, you know, a lot of these customers calling calling every SaaS provider and asking for a 50% discount. And depending on the business, some of them are just giving it, you know, they, or they give a third 33% discount. That's a pretty big difference to your margin if you're at like a 20% profit margin and you give away 33%. So, um, yeah, I think it's just really, again, it's just knowing what's really going on with the business. Is it so mission critical people don't think to do that? Or is it actually, you know, they've been earning pretty well for a while and maybe they're very profitable and they can afford it and everyone does get a big discount. So, mm. yeah, all that stuff is things that I'm thinking about. One one final one I'd like to ask is on the topic of these SaaS businesses, software as a service. Mm-hmm. 
for quite a while, analysts and investors have, have baked in a lot when it comes to companies saying, oh, you know, we've got 80% recurring revenue, mm-hmm. 90% of our customers are retained next year, these types of things. And that, it, uh, you know, I fielded a question on this um, last week from our members and it's kind of like, how do you think about that in terms of if some of these companies are handing out uh, 30% reductions in their, you know, their annualised contracts or whatever, how do you think about that in defining which companies are likely to um, give into that pressure from customers mm-hmm. versus those that, that don't? Is are there any defining characteristics of companies which are indeed, you know, wide moat businesses? It really comes down to um, understanding kind of the, the competitive dynamics of the industry itself. I think we talked about this on the last podcast and um, other times when we've done pre- presentations, but there's this idea that the certain amount of value is created in the industry and it's captured by different um, competitors different players in the industry based on the ability that they have to um, kind of defend from barrier, basically from competition. So the primary force of all Michael Porter's five forces is um, barriers to entry and competition. I think that that's the deciding factor. And it's just trying to think through that because if you're, if someone, if you're in our business and someone calls you and asks for 33% discount, the reason you give it is because they say they're going to go to a competitor. If that threat isn't real, if it's very hard for them to go to a competitor, that's when you can resist that. And so that really comes down to how easy it is to switch and how easy it is for a competitor to take the business of the company that currently has it. So I guess it's really doubling down on that. I think a lot of things, particularly with SaaS, has been uh, moved to the cloud. So you've seen this adoption curve, which is great. But during that time, it can hide uh, like the true competitive positions of companies because um, because everyone's moving to the cloud, right? So if you have 10 competitors, they can all often stay in there during that hyper growth point and then it's to the top of that S-curve where things start getting washed out because suddenly the projections aren't what they thought. And so I think we've just seen some of that, basically. I think we see a shakeout into the few that can handle it. And, you know, some of the companies that um, even lose revenue could still emerge a winner, right, as long as they have a bigger balance sheet and their competitors can't. So that's still something to think about. But generally speaking, it's just trying to find those that are mission critical enough to avoid um, being shaken out at all and where their customers so there's two things one is the customers whether they're going to try try to get a reduction or whether customers even can pay so um, there's there's been a lot of industries where I think, I think you need to think about the health of your customer um, and I think this is again as I said we see really high quality businesses lead through this and high quality businesses aren't just thinking about extracting the most value. It's also about creating value. So it's growing the pie and then capturing as much of a share of that as they can, but it's about growing that for all stakeholders. So um, if your model has been kind of predatory, that probably gets exposed a bit. Whereas if you've been creating value, you're probably going to be rewarded during this time. Customers are less likely to take it, try and take it from you, or you could even find a way to add more value to them during this process. So yeah, it's, it's a just a, yeah. Very big divergence again, as I said, probably the biggest we'll ever see, I think, over the next kind of six to 12, 18 months. Yeah, as you said at the very start of this conversation, it's one of those things where, you know, you've got to put yourself in the in the driver's seat of the company and actually understand what is moving that business. And if you don't, you're effectively flying blind in a time like this. Mm-hmm. Um, as we come to the end, Matt, just to recap, um, where can people find out more about you? Yeah, so uh, malenfunds.com.au, um, M-A-V-E-N funds.com.au or uh, mattjoss.com, mm-hmm. M-A-T-T-J-O-A-S-S.com. 
Yeah, and you've put some updates. As you said, you've written about Pushpay quite a few times on your website, so I'll provide some some links to that, and you're also on social media, right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Get in touch, always keen to chat. So, yeah, feel free to reach out. Great. Matt, Joss from Maven Funds, thanks for joining me, Matt. Thanks very much, Aaron. Pleasure. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.